Oh, so the story of the book is probably the best example of how Ruth does everything, which is completely by accident and being unable to say no. With me on the show today is Ruth Seeley. Ruth is the Senior Community Outreach Manager at Red Hat. She was heavily involved in opensource.com. She is the author of Raspberry Pi Hacks, along with co-author Tom Calloway. She is part of the Red Hat CoLab project, and she's probably also doing half a dozen other things that I don't know about as well. Ruth, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on. Half a dozen sounds like a lowball. Yeah, you are You are a very busy woman. You're always, you're always doing something. I have many things going on, relevant and irrelevant. Well, hopefully we'll be able to get into some of those. Uh, it's great to have you on. When I was thinking of guests for this show, for the initial episodes, your name popped up to the top of the list. And ironically, I have heard you talk many times about working to get others involved in open source and fostering that interest in kids and teens. And I realized that outside of a few comments here or there at Red Hat Summit last year, I've actually never heard you talk about what got you interested in technology and open source. And having known you for five, six years at this point, I thought, okay, it's about time for that to change. So let's start at the beginning. Do you remember roughly when it was that your interest in technology first blossomed and what drew you into wanting to get into it? Sure. Technology different from open source, I think, but well, for if for no other reason than the fact that I remember having a computer as a small child and open source as a term did not exist for many more years yet. I just explained to my kids the other day that the my daughter's 14, so you know you're in high school and they're starting to think about college and what you might want to do. And I said, uh, you know, my whole career at this point is open source software, except that term didn't even exist until after I graduated from high school. But yeah, so I remember the computers in kindergarten. We had Logo, the little turtle, which I discovered a few years ago. You can do Logo in LibreOffice Writer, which is super fun. Oh, you can relive nice. the turtle experience. I remember getting, I don't remember what magazine it was. It might've been National Geographic World came with basic programs that would span two or three pages and you could painstakingly type in the whole thing and then discover you had missed a character on line 50 <laughs> and have to start all over again. Uh, that may have been the beginning of my bitterness with technology. But computers were always around my house. My brother was about nine years older than me. And so he probably led the way in that. I saw a lot of it from him. I did not set out to get a degree in computer science. I started out in a degree program that was similar. It was a management information science. Basically, it was a computer science degree without as much math. But my intention was to get a master's degree in international business. Okay. And then, uh, you know, as strange college stories go, I made a friend in the program and I looked at his textbooks and I decided it was super boring and I was absolutely not going to do that. I guess now I technically have sort of an international business career of sorts, <laughs> given how much time I spend on a plane, but it doesn't involve anything in a finance textbook. So I actually ended up switching halfway through college to a journalism degree and uh, in public relations specifically. And this was about 1998. Yeah, that math checks out. And there is an organization called the Public Relations Student Society of America. It's the student version of the organization that accredits PR professionals. And so I joined that and in the way that I do even today, immediately volunteered to be the secretary. And so I got all the mail for the organization. 
and I saw that the national organization needed a new webmaster. And also much like I do today, I bit off more than I probably could chew. And I said, well, you know, I've built some darn fine GeoCities websites in my time. I am absolutely qualified to be your webmaster, which in 1998 might have been true. But uh, that they gave me the job and I spent the summer learning to build a database for a jobs website and everything else that went along with it. So it kind of started there. And then this guy in my dorm said, uh, you know, if you're going to do this internet thing, you should probably check out this Linux and slid me a Red Hat CD. And that's kind of the beginning of that. Do you happen to remember what version of, uh, of Red Hat it was? Because uh, people always are interested. No idea. Whatever it would have. I, so it would have been 98 or 99. I remember the guy. Okay. Uh, I thanked him for my career <laughs> a few years ago. So did was Linux how you got into open source or did you kind of tangently know about open source and then learned about Linux? Because it seems that people come at it from both directions. It's interesting. So actually, when I talk to people about getting involved in open source, part of the motivation is that I was a user for such a long time before I realized that I could be a contributor. So, I, you know, when you're in college, it's just this free as in free of cost thing. And that's super awesome when you're a college student and have no money to buy the fancy software. And so then when I got jobs, that was what I built on. And it was the, the lamp stack days. And that was just what I did. It never occurred to me to go look for how to be a part of any of this. And then uh, I had a few assorted jobs. I worked for Duke University. I worked for a semiconductor consortium, uh, a company that made cool pharmacy robots. And then one day I had a really bad day at work and I checked monster.com and I joked that I'm the only person who ever actually got a job for monster.com. But there was this <laughs> listing at Red Hat and I was like, oh, well, I, I like that Red Hat thing. And that job description sounds like it was made for me. That probably means they'll never call back, but they did. And that's how I became co-editor of Red Hat magazine in 2007. And here we are. Sorry, I don't know how to tell a short story. No, that's fine. That's, that's not a problem at all. So have you stayed, I mean, obviously I know you're a Fedora user now. You're obviously still with Red Hat. Have you, did you stay with Red Hat and Fedora or did you at any time venture out into other distros or? I actually often tell this story when I present to new hire orientation at Red Hat, which is the summer of, uh, I believe it's 2003, when in May Red Hat announced that Red Hat Linux was going away. But it wasn't until September that the Fedora project came along. Mm -hmm. And so the truth is that is the summer that I and I think a lot of other people learned that Red Hat and Linux were not synonyms, that there were others. So I think there are some SUSE disks around here. When I interviewed <laughs> at Red Hat, our home server was running Ubuntu, which I... No, that's not true. Our home server was running CentOS, which at the time was not part of Red Hat. Correct. And, and I confessed this in my interview, but I was interviewing with someone who worked on a brand marketing kind of team. And she's like, that's cool. I don't actually understand what you just said. <laughs> so it was fine. So when would you say, and maybe you didn't, but there's a lot of people that talk about like a quintessential moment that was like when it all finally clicked for them and they got the whole open source and how the community works together. Did you have that singular moment or was it kind of a, a longer extended thing where it was just a slower realization over time? Probably the slower thing. And to be honest, unfortunately, probably not until after I started working at Red Hat. Cause like I said, I didn't really fully understand the whole concept uh, until I started working there. It wasn't clear to me that that contribution was meant to be a part of this, especially if you aren't a particularly useful developer, which I am not. <laughs> so when you when you started working with Red Hat, what would you say looking back now was 
kind of the most serendipitous thing that you that you learned or you realized after starting there that you would never have expected? Oh my gosh. I have no idea. It's just so it, at this point, I just passed my 13 year anniversary at Red Hat. The early years are getting a little fuzzy. So the early years I worked on a Red Hat magazine, which no longer exists. And we mm-hmm. had a couple of spinoff blogs at one point. One of them was DevFu, which was for developer stuff. And the other was called Truth Happens. And okay. Truth Happens might, in a sense, be an, an early edition of opensource.com. So it was about, I, you know, 2007 seems like not that long ago, but in terms of the way people feel about open source, it's about a century ago. Yeah. And so it was about all of that culture and legal aspects and all of that. And so it probably had a lot to do with the, the things that we wrote and posted there. I also, I, I wrote a lot on Red Hat Magazine about the sort of things that then later would be opensource.com content about Document Freedom Day and open source, all the other things. So when it came around to opensource.com in the beginning, it wasn't about software at all. In fact, we had sort of a no technology rule. It was about okay. open education resources and open healthcare things and open government and open medical and uh, then I talked a lot about video games, and finally Steam worked on Linux, those sorts of things. So some of that was seeded in the Red Hat Magazine days. Mm-hmm. Now, is that where kind of the, the concept came for the All Things Open conference that later came about? or I have no idea. You don't know? Okay. So, I didn't know if that was one of the other things you had dealings with or not. All Things Open is run by Todd Lewis, who previously ran PostCon in South Carolina, but I was not involved in launching it. OpenSource.com has been a sponsor for a long time, but not running it. Okay. With OpenSource.com, what was your role in, in the organization or in the site itself? OpenSource.com launched in January of 2010. In April of 2009, so some number of months prior to that, I had a kid. And so I missed most of that summer. And when I came back, uh, my boss and some folks around the office said, okay, we're doing a new thing. And the new thing was that opensource.com was a domain that Red Hat had actually had for quite some time, and it was redirecting to redhat.com. And they decided we should do something cool with it. Okay. And I don't actually remember at this point. In fact, I missed most of the discussions for sure because I was on maternity leave, but I don't remember the initial evolution into what it became. But it was always meant to be technology agnostic. It has always said something to the effect of sponsored by Red Hat. I'm not sure exactly what it says today. We could go open it and see. Uh, But like I Uh said, in the early days, there was no software, no technology at all, which is no longer true. And I had a lot of fun finding the ways uh-huh. that openness was being very successful in completely non-software, non-technology ways. Okay, so shifting gears here a little bit, I mentioned before that you were the author of a, of a book. Oh dear. And I actually have kind of a funny anecdote about this. So I had, I had a friend of mine had bought the book and had loaned it to me for a couple weeks and I went through certain sections of it that I was interested in and then gave it back. And then I think it was, I think it was Southeast Linux Fest in 2014. Um, you gave a talk with Tom. And I think I actually, I think I got into the room after you guys had started because there was no mention that I remember hearing about a book. And some of the things that you were talking about, I kept thinking, I, I remember reading something just like that in, in that Raspberry Pi book. 
I wonder if she's read it too. <laughs> and then it got to the end of the end of the talk or whatever, and you're like, oh, and there's this book that we've put together. And I was like, oh wow, I'm an I'm an idiot. I'm in the room with the person who helped write the book, and I, yeah. So where did where did that whole idea come from? Of let's let's do this. Let's make this a book. Oh, so the story of the book is probably the best example of how. Ruth does everything, which is completely by accident and being unable to say no. So in, it must have been 2012 at this point. So the book came out in December 2013. So 2012 sounds mm -hmm. right for OSCON. Tom and I did the Fedora booth with a photo booth that was built around a Raspberry Pi and my DSLR. Mm -hmm. And it was a little goofy because everybody, you know, even in the long ago of 2013, had a cell phone with a camera in it. Right. And you could take all the pictures you wanted. But what it would do is you'd hit a button and it would take your picture. And Tom was wearing a Tux penguin suit. You take your picture with Tux and then you would scan a QR code and it would send you your picture as well as information about Fedora. So okay. that was the idea. And there was a guy who at the time was an editor for Make Magazine, which at mm -hmm. the time was part of O'Reilly. And I had met him at North Carolina Maker Fair the year before. And he said, hey, Ruth, what's up? And we chit-chatted. And he said, I like what you're doing over there. Maybe sometime you could write some content for me. And I was like, oh, yeah, like I could write some articles for the magazine. And he goes, or a book. You could write a book. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I could write a book. No, I can't write a book by myself. Tom. So I go over to Tom. I was like, Tom, we're writing a book. <laughs> he goes, we are not writing a book. And then the next morning... We get our coffee, and you know, in the exhibit hall, and he goes, I was thinking, mm -hmm. yeah, maybe we'll write a book. <laughs> <laughs> and so we brainstormed the outline actually at FUDCON Paris that year, the Fedora conference, uh, with some other Fedora folk and spent a lot of travel. He lived in Massachusetts at the time, and I lived in North Carolina, mm -hmm. but we would be at the same conferences. And so we would bring a bunch of electronics in our bags, sit around wherever we were, building things we would sometimes in the red hat office in westford massachusetts and i would send an email to lesbian like i i remember the the first time we were there i was taking apart the game boy i wanted to rebuild a game boy with a raspberry pi inside mm -hmm. and the game boy is held together with some nonsense screws and i emailed the whole office list and said i don't suppose anybody by chance has the screwdriver for this thing and of course somebody did because you know, a bunch of nerds in one office, somebody's going to have the weird thing you need. And that picture is actually in the talk that you're talking about. I was super impatient and I really wanted to make it happen and I didn't have the right parts. And so the wires are actually held to the GPIO with teeny tiny alligator clips. And I stood <laughs> over it so that I could make sure nothing was touching. I ran a piece of paper down, making sure nothing. And then I sat there and, right. and played Tetris, I think, for the next hour because it worked. Then later I found out that that screen should not have worked in that fashion, but mm -hmm. nobody told me it shouldn't work, so it did. <laughs> right. So you just tried to do it anyway. So how long did you guys work on the book? Because it's like 300 and some pages, and that's obviously not something you can just spit out in a weekend or... As it turns out, you kind of can, because... Really? Our, not, not quite literally a weekend, but our contract had us write a third of it at a time okay and the first one third of it was due middle end of december in 2012 okay. and so we did that and i sent an email to the editor saying i think i messed up the the system that they have you use uh was i don't know it was a weird markdown or whatever it was I said, I think I did something wrong, but if you tell me how to do it right, I'll do it right from now on and we'll be cool. 
and he never replied and i was like oh <laughs> sorry like did we suck that much okay well he left o'reilly which was why i never heard from him again and then mm -hmm. we had a couple more editors and it was a big hot mess and we just kind of forgot about it for several months because they seemed to not care about us and so we didn't care about them anymore i'm sorry whoever's listening from o'reilly this is just the truth of what <laughs> happened and then along in the fall somebody emailed us and said so you writing that book or what and we we're like oh like by when and they were like well how about how's now is now good and so we we did i think maybe a month we wrote two-thirds of the book okay so is that where some of the the fun comments come in because you guys were burnt out and you were just trying to no that's just because levity? we're ridiculous people okay well that, that's a, that's a valid reason as well i mean because one of the parts of talk it's practically yeah i know um, I loved in the, I think it's actually at the back of the book when you're talking about building for a cluster, you get to the point of where it's like, okay, you're going to run make now. And then there's like a little note comment. It's like, and now is when you should actually go read the real novel Beowulf <laughs> because you've got time. <laughs> I do joke that large chunks of that book are warnings of why you shouldn't do what we're about to tell you to do. This is a bad idea. You should do it anyway. But that's why it's enjoyable. There's a, there's a part that tells you how to use a product called Neverwet to run the Raspberry Pi underwater. And you can still find this video on YouTube of it happening. The can specifically says, do not use on electronics, but that's okay. It, it clearly works. Mm -hmm. I actually, in my Facebook memories yesterday, I had to go look it up because I just saw it yesterday. One of my favorite sentences from the book was, uh, I, I really wanted to get costumes in because I like to build costumes. And so I felt like mm -hmm. I should have one, but it took me forever to think of something that wasn't just, uh, that I couldn't do with an Arduino and some LEDs because that's mostly what is useful for costumes right. is light some stuff up. So there's a section that tells you how to use a camera and a screen inside foam armor to make it look like there's a hole shot through mm -hmm. you. So you sort of, you get the camera behind you and the, the screen in front. And so there's a sentence that says, uh, about designing your armor that says, even if you create an original design, it'll look like just more armor to all the people who think it looks cool, but would believe you if you told them that Big Daddy was this guy in the Brotherhood of Steel from Half-Life, which was this really dark spinoff of Super Mario Brothers, and you should totally play it. <laughs> which somehow is a sentence that somebody paid me to put in the book. That's, that's just fantastic. So are there any other amazing sentences that you're going to convince someone to uh, publish for you if you write another book? Uh, that would depend on what book someone decided that I should write in the future. Okay. Well, you hopefully uh, you won't get any emails after this goes out going, hey, I got an idea. You should write one. It is not another um, Raspberry Pi book. <laughs> I mean, I love the Pi and all, but it's been done. So Yeah. Okay. So shifting gears a little bit to Red Hat Colab. Mm -hmm. Now, was this something that you were volunteered for or that you heard coming up and you decided I want to be involved in that? Because when we met, the Colab project had been going on last year at... Uh, Red Hat Summit, because we talked to you about it. Where was kind of the inception for that idea and your involvement? Where did that come come in? You made yourself an accidental really nice segue, because the reason it happened that way is that the original CoLab curriculum was Raspberry Pi based. And CoLab is a project out of our brand team, which was my original team at Red Hat. And so I knew those folks and they knew me and they thought, hey, Ruth and Tom just wrote this book. We should ask them for help. And so here we are. Uh, it's no longer Raspberry Pi based. The most recent one we did in person was illustrating a short book with LED circuits and lily pad Arduinos that make the pages shake or light up or play music and things like that. We're working okay. on what a virtual curriculum looks like, and I can't tell you what it is yet, but I hope it's going to be really cool. 
we just sort of piloted it with a very simple class for Red Hatters kids where I walk them through the LED card kit that you can buy on the Red Hat Cool Stuff store. It's just copper tape and LEDs. But we're hoping that maybe around October we'll have a cool new class that we can do virtually. Okay. Nice. So with with Colab, is this is this something that happens continuously through the year or is it normally happen in like you know, there's a spring and then there's maybe one in the fall, or is it a continuous? In the before times, we would do about four of them a year in different places. We've okay. done them in New York, DC, Raleigh, Denver, Milwaukee. I don't even remember them all. Chicago. We did one in London, and there have been a couple that I didn't attend in other countries as well. So we would do a handful each year. When we do it virtually, who knows? Uh, it, we haven't entirely worked out what that's going to look like yet. So there may be some recorded videos so that you could just do it on your own. There may be more mm -hmm. of the traditional class style. We haven't really worked out yet whether that works with just a single class. Like traditionally, obviously, we only have the kids from one school because we're in one physical place. But virtually, we could theoretically do it with kids from absolutely anywhere. When you've actually been on location, you've been out of school and you've been working with the kids, what has the reaction been that you've seen from students going from, you know, they're, they're first coming into whatever room you guys are in and they're tentative to when it's over. What kind of change have you been able to see in the students themselves through that program? My favorite thing, or one of my favorite things at least, is the very first thing I tell them, at least with this current book curriculum and variations thereof for the others, is that by lunchtime today, it's about nine o'clock in the morning, you will have built a circuit with copper tape and made a page light up. And they're about 11 or 12 years old. They look at me like I am completely insane. For the <laughs> most part, we have we get different classes, different levels of students. and But for the most part, they don't know anything about electricity. I teach them basic concepts of how electrons move in a circuit, batteries, all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. And so when I tell them that they're going to actually build a circuit, they think that I have lost my mind. And then they do it, and that sense of satisfaction is spectacular. There's honestly nothing like it. And then a day and a half after that, they've built this entire book that has wires coming out of everywhere because there are, I think, 28 pages that each have two wires coming out of them, and we plug them into the wall. Okay. And then they read their book, and they see the pages that they made, and they see them light up and shake and play music and all of that. And we send them home with a small version of the just copper tape and LED kit so that they can make whatever they want with it. And so many of them have said things to me like, I can't wait to show the boys at school this book because they won't believe we did it. One girl said to me, my dad is never going to think that I could do this on my own. And so their enthusiasm to prove that they can do things that other people have thought they couldn't is amazing. That's great. Have, have you been able to follow up or has Red Hat followed up with the students in past programs to see, you know, it, if they're doing anything it, along the same vein or like, has there been any follow up of any kind? I guess is what I'm is what I'm getting at. It's only been a few years. We I remember we talked about that early on. Wouldn't it be great to know what they do when they go to college, you know, what they decide to major in if they choose STEM careers? I don't know if we are able to do that. So it becomes complicated with privacy and children and mm -hmm. all of that. And uh, to be honest, I am the instructor. I just teach the stuff. I don't run the program. So I'm not actually sure if they were able to do any of that. Okay. Because that would be interesting to see if, you know, what kind of actually lasting impression. Now, obviously, 
I don't think it would be the thing where every single student decided I'm going to do a computer science oh, sure. degree. <laughs> but if, if that program can bring about one or two students who would never have considered going into a STEM career that then after that go, hey, I can do this. I want to do that. Like that would be that would be amazing. Yeah. In general, what type of advice do you give to people who are interested in getting into technology, specifically open source and Linux, but are kind of feeling tentative because it's this huge, massive thing, and they just look at themselves and they're like, I'm just this me, one individual little person. There's no way I can do anything or make a difference. What is some encouragement or what are the types of things that you advice you give people when they're first taking those first few tentative steps? I think the key is to find what interests someone. So either what project they would like to, to contribute to, what would be meaningful to them, as well as what they would like to contribute to it. So there are a few cool resources for this. There used to be a great website called OpenHatch that doesn't exist anymore that matched people up with code. But the Fedora project has a website where it asks you uh, do you like to write? And you say yes or no. And let's say you say no, it says, do you like to make art? And you say yes or no. And if you say no, it says, do you know multiple languages? And it walks you through all of these ways that you could contribute. And when you say mm -hmm. yes, it directs you into the team that works on that thing. Okay. There's a similar page on apache.org for Apache projects. And I suspect there are others out there that I don't know about. But the people that I really like to try to connect with open source projects are the ones who aren't writing code, who never would have thought that they had anything useful to contribute. But all of those non-code functions are important, uh, are equally mm. important. And so those are the contributors that we lack in so many projects that I would like to see more of. So when you can say to someone, you make really amazing art, wouldn't it be great to see that as wallpaper in the next release of whatever Linux distribution you like? Let's go find where you can make mm -hmm. that contribution. Or uh, you, how about you make some game sprites for open game art? Or you know, whatever is interesting to you, let's find a way to make that connection. If you had to do things over again, and you were going back, like you were talking to yourself 20 years ago, what advice would you give yourself about getting involved in open source and Linux? 20 years ago, I'm pretty sure that I would have just pointed myself in the right direction so that it didn't take me so long to get there. <laughs> That's a short, sad answer. Sorry. No, it's okay. It's okay. Obviously, you're involved in Fedora, so this is a little bit of shameless PR. But for you, why do you think Fedora is the best of the Linux distributions? Or if somebody wanted to get involved in Linux, why would you say, hey, all of them are great, but Fedora is extra great? Uh, the truth is I haven't used another distro since I got to Red Hat, and so I am probably ill-qualified to answer that question. Uh, at this point, honestly, Fedora is what I use and what I know, and so I'm going to keep using it because it's working really well for me, which is as good a reason as any. Uh, and if you want me to help you, it's the thing that I know how to help you with. <laughs> <laughs> okay. If you had to pick one, one aspect of Linux and open source in general, as a, as a whole thing, what would be the thing that you prize most about the community, the technology, whatever comes to mind? What is most valuable to me is not the technology itself, but the collaboration, the foundation principles of how we work. And that's why for the CoLab project, we don't teach another coding boot camp. There are plenty of those. It's called CoLab because what we teach them is collaboration. We teach them the idea that 
even if in your classroom every day you're told not to look at each other's paper and to do your work on your own, that it doesn't have to be that way. That a lot of things can be done better if we do them together, if we do them transparently, and if we do them openly. And so, I, you know, at this point, I don't know if I can actually work anywhere else because I hear that other companies don't work this way, but that's also fundamental to how Red Hat works. And that's what I tell new employees when they come in, that it doesn't matter mm -hmm. if you work in accounting or HR or marketing or something, whatever it is, this is the way we work, not just develop code. It's openly, it's transparently, it's everyone together. So that's what's important to me. And sometimes I encounter other people in the world who are not accustomed to open by default, as we say, and it's confusing and disorienting. <laughs> yeah. I had a conversation the other day with Hugh Blemings. He used to be the director of the Open Power Foundation. And in my conversation with him, we were talking about mentorship and that back in the day, it was very common for, like, for myself and for him, where we met people who knew more than us and were interested in actually passing that knowledge down to us. And we were both talking about how it seemed like there was a phase where that started to kind of fall out of style. But we believe we're starting to see this pick back up again from the kind of the independent maker spaces that are that are popping up all over the place. That that kind of mentorship of individuals actually directly being involved in bringing up, I don't want to necessarily say the next generation, but the next person. And it's not just there's all this information, good luck. Is that something that, I mean, obviously with CoLab, that's something that you guys are, are per actually doing. How can we as a community, if you can come up with any ideas, how can we as a community kind of strengthen that and bring that back into the fray as more of a concrete principle that we all kind of follow? I think the best thing to do is to lead by example, to go ahead and teach others what you know, and not just in the software, but in general. So that's an actually, that's a really great example of what I was talking about, about being in other communities where it's not the default way of working. So I have about 11 billion hobbies, plus or minus one or two. And the communities around making things vary greatly in how much people are willing to share their knowledge about how to do things. So for example, mm. I find the leatherworking communities to be very secretive about techniques and once in a while, of course, you encounter somebody who will tell you the basics, but people are very closed about the way they, they do their things and their secret sauce. Mm -hmm. People in sewing communities, in contrast, are generally happy to tell you what weird thing they just discovered actually works, or you know, we all seem to have forgotten about this device that our grandmothers used. Let me share with you how it has changed my life. So there's this huge spectrum in creating and maker sorts of communities. And in the maker community that we probably think of uh, in the software, hardware world, open hardware, 3D printers, uh, CNC devices, mm -hmm. things like that, also have a pretty big spectrum. And I think it's the people who come to those communities from open source backgrounds who are the most willing to share. So people who, if you remember people who were around for the early 3D printer days when uh, they people called them self-replicating printers, and there mm -hmm. were makerspaces all over with just stacks and stacks of parts waiting for somebody to come and be like, here, we have all the parts, you can build your own and just thrilled to help spread the word. But there are mm -hmm. other folks who did not come to the maker world from that direction, who perhaps 
have not yet heard the great word of how wonderful openness is. And so leading by example is, is key to me. I had a thought and I'm trying to, I'm trying to catch it again. I've been playing a lot of Animal Crossing, so I'm, I'm used to having a net. I gotta throw it. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I still don't have a Wii. I need to get one one of these days. The Wii is like three generations of console ago, so maybe I know. Maybe wait for the fall when the new Switch comes out. <laughs> well, so I still the newest PlayStation I have is a PlayStation Two. So I, I usually am a bit far behind on 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 that on that front. Um, I usually get the hand-me-downs when somebody's tired of it and they just want it to go away. And they're like, hey, do you want this? And I'm like, hey, I don't have that. Yeah, that'll be great. I have <laughs> in my house just about every console that is not Xbox branded back to an Atari 2600. Oh, nice. I actually just dug out my family's old Atari 1200, the, the computer variant. Uh, it needs a little work, but I, I pulled out all the boxes and I started going through it. And it's like, oh, man, I remember this. I remember this. 2600 is um, still totally functional. We had we made the kids play it uh, some number of years back. We no longer have that TV, so I think now the challenge would be connecting it to a TV. Yeah, because you have to find an old TV because the modulation that it needs to do on the signal and yeah. Um, there's actually a, a totally off topic, but there's like a small like fledgling industry that seems to have popped up directly around that issue where people are taking small little PCBs and they're basically building all of the stuff to do the modulation on it and then all the circuitry to do the output. So you just, you plug the, the RCA or whatever the, the actual coax in, and then it'll give you an HDMI out. I might need one of those, cause at, do you know about PenguinCon? I've heard about it. So I was at PenguinCon six years ago now. So it was post book because I built a Soundwave costume, like Transformers Soundwave. Mm -hmm. that had Raspberry Pi in the helmet with LEDs around the eyes and then a Raspberry Pi in the chest. Instead of a tape deck, it had a screen. And you could play Transformers mu music videos, which are apparently a thing the internet produces, or you could play some basic emulator video games, or there was a camera and you could take a picture of yourself on Soundwave because it was looking at you. But right, I was wearing that at PenguinCon and Ernie Klein, who's the author of Ready Player One, was there with his DeLorean, and it was the weekend that they dug up all the ET cartridges in the landfill in Arizona. Arizona? That okay. sounds right. And yeah. for whatever reason, we went to a comic book shop in Michigan where PenguinCon is that day, and there was a new in-package, still sealed up copy of the ET Atari game for five bucks, and I bought that thing, and I haven't played it. So... <laughs> <laughs> you said you wanted tangents. I got tangents all day. Do you happen to remember what the because I, I know if I don't ask somebody will come later like come at me later and be like why didn't you ask do you happen to remember what computer your family had when you were a kid was it an old Commodore was it an old Apple was it we never else? had apples I okay. definitely remember the Commodore 64 other than that I get fuzzy I remember an 8088 and then I remember, of course, the 286, 386, 486. But when I was super young, I don't remember. And I don't think I cared. It was just the the thing that played games, you know? Yeah, the, my family had uh, an Atari. And my dad used it for business. Or at least that's the excuse that he gave his wife on why he needed to buy the Atari and all the things. But then, of course, when it was evening time, it was, hey, boys, let's, let's, let's play this game. Despite the fact that I own many video game consoles now, I owned none as a child because my dad said we had a computer and I could play games on that. 
and did not understand that that's not the same. I can't play Super Mario on the computer. And then I go to my friend's house and I have to be Luigi. And right. she's really good and goes through it really fast. And then I die in three seconds and it's sad. Yeah, and kids today, they don't have that problem because they can play the old NES games and Sega games on a computer. Oh, more importantly, about, I don't know, maybe a, six months ago, nine months ago, I finally actually finished the original Super Mario Brothers because when you play them on the Switch... You can rewind when you die. So you could rewind. Really? Uh, yeah, you could rewind about five seconds at a time. Nice. And so you can finally go finish all the games that you never successfully finished. I never finished Super Mario Brothers 2. I did finish one, and I think I finished three. But a two I could never figure out, because two was the oddball. It's hard. Like, everything was different in that. Okay, the most random thing just happened. Okay, so... go for it. So we're talking about video games and the old stuff, and I was about to recommend this 2014 book that I really like called Console Wars, but I wanted to confirm that that was the title before I told you you should go read this book. And an hour ago, they announced that they've made a documentary based on it that's going to be on CBS All Access. Oh, nice. I will have to check that out. Oh, because of the latest news, obviously I have to ask this. Are you planning on getting one of the new Lenovo's that comes pre-installed with Fedora? I have not placed an order. I think they're super appealing. I just am not really in the need for another laptop at the moment. We got computers dripping from the walls in this house, yeah. especially we had to, to buy at least one more with the kids doing virtual school. We signed them up for the, a full year of virtual school, so... We got computers uh -huh. coming out everywhere around here. Yeah, when I when I heard the news from, from Matthew, I was like, I just bought a Lenovo three months ago. Like, you could have just said, hey, man, <laughs> hold off. Something cool's coming. Just hold off. And it's like, well, now I what I can't go buy one. I just bought one three months ago. I yeah. can't go buy a second one. Uh, he, he jokingly said, well, you could return that one and then buy a new one. And I was like, I think, I don't know if that's going to work <laughs> quite as well as I would like. <laughs> As far as conferences go, how do you think that's going to work out as far as in general? Because the in-person open source conferences kind of were a, they were a staple and they were also a, a thing that people really, really enjoyed because it was like the one time of the year when you could get together with people that you knew, friends that you knew in real life, sit down and talk about the stuff that you normally just chat about over IRC or something. With obviously the, the state of the world today and how everything has been turned upside down, do you think that the, the the open source conference in general, do you think they're going to end up changing? Do you think they're going to adapt? Do you think we're going to end up with a little bit of both? Or do you have any ideas? I got lots of ideas on events. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay, let's hear them then. Let's, let's get so into it. So I spend a lot of time thinking about events either as an event producer or as an event sponsor, or as an event attendee. So I kind of cover all of the directions for different types of events. I am on the board for an organization called LandFest, for which events okay. look very different now because a LandFest by definition suggests that you're in person. And we are doing virtual events, but that's a, a very different draw. However, in mm -hmm. the same way that it is for our open source conferences and for all of the other events, we're reaching people who couldn't attend in person, whether financially or mm -hmm. because of physical limitations or whatever it is. 
conferences across the board are seeing fantastically higher numbers of attendees. Uh, mm -hmm. Last weekend, Labor Day weekend, I usually spend in Atlanta at an event called DragonCon, which is a fantastic yep. 85,000 person festival of nerddom. It's usually 85,000. This year, uh, let me try to remember the numbers, they had people from 49 countries. I want to say it was 250,000. Should number check me on that. But people who have yeah. always, always wanted to come to this massive event finally were able to, and it went really well. They did sessions streaming over YouTube and a Roku channel and had a Discord constantly running. And in as much as it could feel like being at Dragon Con in your house, it did. Mm -hmm. In about two more weeks, I am helping produce Apache Con. And in the last few okay. years, we've had several hundred attendees, you know, in the three to 500 kind of range. This year so far, we have well over 2,000 registered. Wow. So I love that we're reaching those new audiences with all of these events. The question is, what happens after that? And I'm already seeing some events look at doing hybrid uh, conferences. So Game Developers Conference is scheduled for July and intends to be a hybrid. They're usually in May, but they're hoping that by July they'll be able to have an in-person event. Okay. There are a few open source conferences as well that are looking at doing hybrids next year. So I think that that may turn out to be the way of the future because you get to have all of those people who can't be with you, but also the reasons that you and I go to conferences when we go constantly are different from the people who get to go to one a year. And yeah. those hallway track conversations and the the things that you learn about because you ran into somebody while you were standing in line for coffee and happened to say, oh, I haven't seen you in a year. What are you doing? Mm -hmm. You can't reproduce that. I, I know all of these people online that I would see in that situation, but I can't just tweet at them every day what do you have going on i might want to know about it. it's not the same at right all. yeah and several people have tried to find ways to recreate that experience but it's just not the same so mm -hmm. i think if we can master unfortunately the pricing situation because how do you charge when you're doing both an in-person and a virtual event what does that look like right. uh, i think that will be the trick but it seems like hybrid events might be the way we go in the future yeah, that's one of the things that I always loved about the, you know, in-life conferences was just listening to other conversations and picking up those things that normally you would never, you know, be able to get access to because it's a conversation between two people. But, you know, like you said, you're standing in line, it's lunchtime, there's the huge line, and you're just listening to the people in front of you, and you're like, oh, he was talking about some DevOps technique with this, and I had never thought about that. That is brilliant. And then later you're like, okay, so explain what you were explaining to him. Explain it to me again, because that sounded like something I need to know. For sure. I don't know how many people I've met because either I said or they said to me, I'm sorry, I don't mean to eavesdrop, but did you just say blah, blah, blah? Yeah. I would like to know more. May I subscribe yeah. to your newsletter? <laughs> yeah, so I'm hoping that, that we are, as a community, able to work towards some type of hybrid. Not this past year, the previous year, uh, Southeast Linux Fest tried to do an on well, they actually did an online version of it for people who couldn't attend. But it was basically it was like one stream of one conference track, and that was that was what it was. Because you know when you have four conference tracks, that's a whole lot of extra infrastructure. If you're then trying to stream that out and have people be able to select what they want to watch and all that. And I know for this year, 
there's a lot of conferences that just, you know, straight up canceled. You mentioned Dragon Con. One of the conferences that I go to a lot is in Baltimore in D.C. is Otakon. The same vein. And that was, I think, it, on average year is about 120,000. But then obviously this year they canceled it because it was in August and it was like, yeah, no, we're just, we're not even, we're not even going there. We're not even going to try. Baltimore had one that never even canceled. You guys just cram people into a convention oh, well, center and hope for the best. Baltimore is a little crazy. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting that some have been able to transition over to doing things online while others haven't. Like the uh, Hot Chips uh, conference, which just took place, I think it was a couple weeks ago. Uh, they were able to transition to doing it strictly online. And the same thing, they saw their numbers jump by like 30, 40%. Because normally, well, you would have to fly out to the Bay Area. Well, that's a very expensive venture that a lot of people can't do is, oh, let me go fly out to the Bay Area during the week and stay in a hotel and eat down there. Whereas, oh, I can stay home and I can sign up and I can still go. Obviously, their numbers their numbers shot up. So I hope that as a, as a larger community, we're able to figure out the best way to leverage both for having in-person and also having the online. Because obviously, you are regionally limited to where you can attend for physical conferences. And if there's not one in your area, well, then you don't have the opportunity to. But for me, it's the, it's the personal interaction that you get with people that is the, the most beneficial. And it's interesting, one of the other podcasts that I do, Jeff, my co-host... We actually, we met at Self in person, but when we met at Self, it was like two years later we realized we had known each other for like 10 years in the Slackware IRC channel. We had just never put two and two together. Yeah. Another person that I met at Self was Jason Plum. He's one of the core developers of Arch Linux Arm. He actually, for a year or two, we talked online continuously and we were like, hey, we should get together sometime. Well, we actually lived like 25 miles away from each other and didn't know it but only met when we both drove eight and a half hours to go to a conference. Yeah. I don't know. Do you know Mark Hinkle? I know. Yeah, I've met him, I think. So he and I saw each other at, you know, the conference of the month several times a year for several years on end. And then finally one day, one of us said, hey, where do you live? And North Carolina. Oh, really where? Near Raleigh. Oh, really where? Care. Like, and it went down and down until it turned out he literally lived in my backyard. Like, you just walked <laughs> up this hill of trees and he was on the other side of it and we just never knew. Oh, I was going to, I had one other thing to say though that was relevant. Oh, go for it. I think it'll be interesting to see as this goes on, as we have more virtual events, how popular they remain. Because not only are they seeing significantly more registrations and significantly more attendees, but high attendance relative to registrations. So particularly with free events, there is always a significant number of people who don't show up. Mm. But with the, the virtual events, people are showing up. Now, a lot of companies have suspended travel through at least next June, if not later, is that going to continue? So if it's a year and a half into this and it's another virtual conference, are people still going to be as motivated? I don't know. Yeah, I think that's something we're just going to have to find out when we find out. And I mean, hopefully we're not still in the state that we are right now in September next year. It would be nice to kind of return to what life used to be. I don't know how well that's going to work, but it'll be interesting to see if, you know, the, the interest that we have right now overall in online conferences continues. I think I think for our community in the Linux and open source world, I don't think that's going to be as much of an issue 
because we're so used to always being online anyway. I know with Fedora, we've been doing the social hours mm -hmm. every week. And, you know, they've been continually steady ever since they first did. I think we're now at like 10 or 12 weeks in and we're still getting the same number. I mean, it's not a, it's not a huge number, but there's the consistency, which is nice. Instead of just seeing the initial spike and then everyone not doing it anymore, there's that consistency of everyone still joining. So I hope that overall we're able to continue and keep the interest because doing it online is definitely a way to reach out to more people. And one of the things I also hope is that as we become more used to doing online conferences is that we can spin that into getting people involved and not just you come to the conference, you attend, you know, you sit at home, you watch the lectures, but then once that's over, leveraging that into getting more people involved in whatever way they can, whether to take it back to our previous conversation, whether that's getting involved in doing art for a project or whether that's, you know, getting involved with doing documentation. For me, that's one of the things that I think I'm most interested in seeing what we as a larger community can pull off is when we have these virtual events, how can we leverage that into more a larger community and more active community? So, Ruth, thank you for taking the time to uh, to come on and talk to me. I know it's it's been uh, it's it's late on Friday, so I know the weekend is is calling. But I'll just give you one last one last question: Is there is there anything else like on your mind that you would want to to let people know about as far as how they can get involved in open source or Linux or just as an encouragement to people in general? I think I covered a lot of it when we were talking about ways to encourage new contributors. So I am going to plug the thing that I would like somebody to go work on more, which is, uh, it's called Inkstitch. I just discovered this. I don't okay. work on it. I would like to be a user. I did start using it. It's an embroidery plugin for Inkscape. So embroidery software is extraordinarily closed. In fact, so I have an embroidery machine to use the software. I have to have not one, but two USB dongles plugged into the machine for the software to even operate. And there are not really a lot of open source alternatives. There have been a couple of attempts that failed. So I recently discovered that Inkstitch exists and I'm really excited about it and I would like it to get better. So that is what I would like people to go contribute to. <laughs> okay, so everyone listening, you need to go figure out how you can help with this project. Ruth, again, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me.